Hello and a warm welcome to this week's edition of Econo Day Unplugged on Wednesday, the 25th of August 2021. Terry Sheehan is stateside, Brian Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. While globally recent economic news has tended to be disappointingly soft and in many cases weak enough to encourage a downgrade to growth forecasts for the rest of 2021. Just last week, Bank of America Corporation's monthly survey of fund managers found only a net 27% of respondents expecting the global economy to improve. Now, that's its lowest reading since April 2020 and down from 91% as recently as March. Versus expectations, the US economy might not be doing too badly, but COVID is typically having a significant impact elsewhere. Notably in Europe, where Conaday's Economic Consensus Divergence Index, the ECDI, is deeper in negative surprise territory than at any time since last November. And of course, for a good number of countries, this comes at a time of overshooting inflation that may or may not prove transitory. Either way, such a combination presents a major challenge for policymakers. Speculation about QE tapering, especially ahead of this week's Jackson Hole Symposium, may be the talk in the markets, but the big picture still argues in favour of caution when it comes to the, to the uh, prospective withdrawal of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Anyway, before we go to Terry and Jackson Hole, this week we have Brian with us, so let's go to him first to find out how COVID is impacting the data and policy in his part of the world. So, Brian, if we can kick off with Japan, I see the government has just expanded the uh, state of emergency from 13 to 21 prefectures due to the Delta variant. Just last week, Toyota said it would slash worldwide vehicle production by 40% next month because of a global microchip shortage. So what's the assessment of what's going on out there and just how bad is the uh, the effect from COVID and the likes going to be to the Japanese economy? Well, yeah, it's obviously the... It's the number one issue to think about going forward. You know, we had uh, the, the obviously the Tokyo Olympics over the last month or so, um, and you know that might uh, cause a, a bit of a pop in some of the numbers. But um, you wouldn't have thought that it'd be enough to really overturn the, the the impact that you know the the virus is having on on broader economic activity. Um, yeah, I, I think we're, we're all just at the mercy of what um, what COVID does in in terms of. Um, uh, allowing us to uh, get back onto this recovery, and so that's that's obviously going to be something that's uh, disrupting the Japanese economy, but uh, the the region in, in you know more broadly. When it comes to, I mean, certainly as far as most, well, the European Central Bank, um, the, the Bank of England, and and probably here from Terry in a minute about the FOMC side. I mean, COVID is very much something which features strongly in the minutes of the meetings and so forth. I mean, is COVID a big issue as far as the Bank of Japan's concerned, or is it something they're tending to sweep under the table? Well, to, to be honest, because you know their their policy settings have been so stable for so long, mm-hmm. it's not having, I think, a, a huge impact on the policy outlook because you know nobody's been expecting them to to make a move um, even before this happened. But this is just you know I think reinforcing their view that uh, you know this uh, long-standing now uh, extreme levels of policy accommodation is still the the appropriate response. Uh, you know we, we can imagine a scenario where we didn't have this virus over the last eighteen months and. Uh, we had, um, you know, everything going great and people really confident and, and happy about the uh, the economic impact of the of the Olympics and you know who knows what else could have happened and mm-hmm. then we might be having a conversation about you know perhaps it's, it's time for the BOJ to to start thinking about changing policy but that's obviously not the world we've lived in. 
OK, um, I'm going to ask you about China. It seems that you know, most of the talk there is that we are starting to see a, a slowdown in economy in general now. So I guess is it the case that you know the slowdown's accelerating? And I mean, of late there's been a lot of talk in the media about the government's regulatory crack crackdown on you know, some of these leading uh, technology companies. And I suppose the question there is, do you think that that poses a danger to longer-term productive potential as far as China's concerned? Uh, yeah. Uh... That that specific issue, you know, is definitely one that's caused a bit of um, raised a few eyebrows. But you know, more broadly, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's going to be the the you know the number one issue that um, impacts the 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 long term trajectory of of you know those industries and sectors. But uh, you know, they're again just uh, you know wrestling with the short term impact of of COVID. But what we are seeing is there has been a bit of a a gap between the manufacturing and the and the service sector. PMIs uh, mm-hmm. open up over the last couple of months, so that's possibly um, uh, an encouraging sign that, you know, perhaps the manufacturing sector, particularly, you know, some of the outbreaks we've had down in Guangdong and other places, uh, you know, that's why we're seeing a bit of a, a weaker number for the manufacturing PMI. But the, the perhaps you know the service sector is more broadly indicative of, of overall health of of the economy. But that said, um, again, there's no real sort of rush to change policy. In China as well, they've sort of tweaked their reserve requirements a little bit in the last couple of months, but um, yeah, else what you know, other policy settings are, are still very much on hold. And um, you know, we've had a few officials come out and saying that um, you know they're going to be flexible and cautious and prudent. You know, the, the normal things that they say, mm-hmm. but no real uh, big change to uh, the overall stance on monetary policy. Right, so you say, um, as, well, as you're sort of kind of implying, there's no change in what loan prime rates last week. Um, do you no, think they've, they've been on hold since last April, so um, yeah, right. They're, they're, again, just waiting to see if, if there's if there's any scope to start adjusting policy. So first half of this year, I suppose one of the dominant trends in the FX markets was the appreciation of the Chinese currency. Um, if we are starting to see, you know, let's say uh, a significant slowdown in, in activity in China, do you think the authorities will be that much more concerned about the path of the exchange rate? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, they're, they're always paying attention to, uh, you know, what impact that's having on the export sector. So um, if we, we, we see, um, you know, external demand really weaken, uh, they'll be putting, you know, a lot more attention on to the, to the exchange rate. Uh, but you know, there's, there's, they're obviously limited in what they can do on that front. Um, but um, you know, that's just one of the tools they'll be looking at. All right. So let's shift across to your immediate part of the world then. Um, I guess you still have lockdown, lockdowns going on um, across what a fair, fair swathe of Australia is it now? Um, do you think that's going to sort of you know, slow down the the pace at which we might see any quantitative easing coming out of the RBA? Or at this stage, is it still the case that it's just a question of when it happens? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question, and it's one that you know is definitely uh, being discussed at the moment. And so we had the minutes of the RBA meeting at the start of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the start of the month, they came out and said, "Okay, we're we're still going to start scaling back our asset purchases. They're, they're not not too aggressively. They're doing about five million Australian, uh, sorry, five billion Australian a week." Uh, scaling back to four billion starting next month in September. So the minutes that came out two weeks later revealed that they had suggested, or at least raised the possibility of delaying that that uh, scaling back of those purchases from uh, five billion to four billion. But they decided uh, on balance that that's not the right thing to do. They they thought that 
um, if they if they did keep it at five billion, it, it wouldn't really provide any near term uh, support. Uh, and by the time that um, it, it did get around to, you know, having a meaningful impact on on uh, domestic liquidity conditions, then you know they were hopeful that uh, public health conditions would would be improved. So the the bottom line was they they they're still on that course of scaling it back, but at a gentle pace. But of course, uh, the longer these lockdowns uh, continue, uh, the more likely it is that they won't scale that back any further, or they'll you know they'll scale back the the pace at which they start reducing these these asset purchases. So you know. The, I think it's it's a broad broader uh, issue, you know, not just for RBA but across the region. You know, the, mm-hmm. we've got central bank officials with with plans and ideas and hopes and aspirations about what they want to do, but obviously the virus has different ideas about uh, what what they can do. Okay, uh, Sonny, over here in Europe, um, where the uh, well, you know, the COVID numbers have started to increase decrease again as well. Um, there's been some at least early indications that it is now starting to impact some of the sentiment numbers, both consumer and in the business sector as well. Is that true of Australia? Yes, uh, uh, you, you're going to, I think, see the most of the impact come through in you know, probably in the next uh, month's worth of data. But um, yeah, we are starting to see some of those those indicators. Uh, and yeah, that's that's to be completely expected. You know, with, with New South Wales now, which is the the most populous state in uh, Australia, has been in lockdown for I don't know seven or eight weeks now. Mm. Uh, and Victoria, the second biggest state in terms of population, that's also just had a, you know a series of lockdowns rolling into each other. Um, so it's just impossible to expect that that's not going to have a huge impact on the numbers. And we're you know we're starting to see people think, okay, we could actually. You know, move into an official recession with with two quarters of negative growth. Um, as bad as that. You know, that, that. That's that's not baking the cake yet, but um, that's sort mm. of the direction we're heading unless we get a, a bit of a, a pop pretty soon. Okay. All right, then. Um, I'm going to ask you about New Zealand. I mean, beginning of last week, there was you know, all the chatter in the markets that the uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand would be hiking interest rates um, at its policy meeting. As it turned out, we suddenly got this emergency lockdown being introduced and the decision from the RBNZ was not to do anything. But it still sounds from what I've seen that the central bank remains extremely hawkish. So should we still be looking for an interest rate hike out there before the end of the year? Well, they definitely want to, uh, and you know, I think you're right. Uh, just before that meeting, they were, they were almost ready to pull the trigger, uh, and then you know they had this news just a couple of days before that you know New Zealand had its first uh, locally transmitted cases in in several months, uh, and the government you know reacted very aggressively in terms of lockdown. So that uh, that obviously was was the the factor that kept them from pulling the trigger, uh, and. Yeah, again, it it just depends on on whether these uh, pretty aggressive measures are enough to uh, you know stop the virus from uh, spreading in New Zealand because they have a very strict policy of, of you know going for COVID zero. Um, so if that works and we we uh, have have a quick sort of recovery, uh, quick sort of um, you know a bounce back from uh, from lockdown, then sure the the RBNZ will be in position to do what it wants to do, but. Uh, that's still a, an open question at the moment. Mm. I thought it was quite interesting in the way the New Zealand dollar traded last week when it was being bid up in expectation of the interest rate hike. And as soon as it became apparent it wasn't going to happen, um, it really got hit in the FX markets quite hard and has obviously dragged the Aussie dollar down with it as well. And you kind of wonder now, if they do come out and tighten before the end of the year, how much of a, you know, a relief boost it's actually going to give to the currency market. So yeah. going to be an interesting one to watch. 
Okay, thanks, Brian. Any else from uh, your side? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were speaking just a couple of hours before the Bank of Korea uh, oh, yeah. announces its policy decision. Yep. So that's so by the time that uh, this this is uh, up and alive, um, we'll probably already have the decision. Uh, better, get your call right. better get your call right then. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's a very, very close call. I mean, normally on, on these things, um, you know, there is a very clear consensus and uh, we have a pretty good read on what's happening. But uh, on this one, it's pretty much 50-50. If you look at the uh, sort of domestic analysts and economists, um, I think one survey had a majority saying that they're going to hold and another survey had a majority saying they're going to cut. So it's really a, a toss of the coin at the moment. And again, we've got the situation where the Bank of Korea obviously does want to start scaling back um, policy support. Uh, we've had the governor there, uh, Governor Lee Joo-yeol, um, being pretty hawkish over the last couple of months, talking about financial stability, uh, saying that even if he was to hike rates twice, uh, we'd still have um, policy at very accommodative levels. So uh, that had quite an impact on, on expectations going forward. But again, I think in the just the last uh, week or so, people have said, oh, well, you know, the, the COVID thing is, is again going to be the factor that uh, keeps them from uh, going ahead right now. So um, we'll, we'll see very shortly. OK, brilliant. Thanks for that, Brian. Right, moving on then to Terry, uh, Jackson Hole Symposium Thursday and Friday. Looks as if that will be virtual now due to COVID, but it'll be nonetheless yep. important for that. So all eyes on Jerome Powell and any tapering clues. What's he going to say? Well, I think he may well have to uh, do a little tapering in to his own speech because uh, the, the simple fact that just a few days ago, the Kansas City Fed switched this to a completely virtual event tells us that the course of the pandemic is still having an impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has been one of the conditions that the Fed has been keeping a close eye on. Uh, I, I don't think that markets are going to see the sort of specificity that they had hoped for from Powell. I do think he will discuss broadly the conditions under which they will taper. Um, but I think he may also add a healthy grain of salt in there to let people know that September may indeed be too soon to expect it. Interesting. Now, if it's going to be perhaps less, let's say, um, apparent that, than markets were previously expecting with regards to the tapering, um, do you think he's going to again come out and reiterate the fact that he wants to see an improvement in the labour market? And if it is going to be perhaps slightly less clear cut what he's going to say, it makes next week's employment report all the more important. Well, and I think that that really will be the pivotal piece of data as to whether the taper is announced for real in September or later on. Um, we've had two reports in a row of nearly a million jobs added. Mm -hmm. It's unlikely we'll get quite that kind of number again, uh, but um, we also have to look at the surveys of manufacturing and services in the US, which have in fact shown a great bit of slowing, although they're still expanding healthily. They, they just are not at the pace they were even a couple of months ago. So um, I, I think we can anticipate that the pace of employment is going to be somewhat slower as well. 
Now, will it be enough to satisfy the Fed about the substantial improvement they're looking for? Remains to be seen. Let me ask you, how wide do you think are the current splits on the FOMC as to whether or not now is kind of the right time to start tapering or we shouldn't really even be thinking about it yet? Well, just to go back over what Fed policymakers always say about there, it's no decision is made before the meeting and everything depends on the data. Um, I think at least among the current set of voters on the FOMC, it's probably about a 50-50 split. So that's not particularly helpful. Uh, <laughs> the FOMC as a whole, I think um, probably the majority, at least a, a decent majority of them, um, would like to start the taper. I think there are worries about imbalances, uh, about this going on too long, about the size of the balance sheet uh, being astronomical now. Um, so I, I do think that the reasons they started the asset purchases in terms of establishing financial stability and providing markets with liquidity aren't really the reasons now. So the U.S. economy is going along pretty well. Third quarter looks like it's going to be not as strong as the second, but certainly um, show good growth probably somewhere in the three to four percent range. Uh, so, you know, the the need to provide that much stimulus via asset purchases, it's they can now make a good argument that it just isn't needed. Mm. I must say, that's a very fair point. And I think, um, you know, as we recall, the podcast is increasing talk that perhaps, you know, talking about tapering is all very well. But is it the case that, you know, the current stance of policy is even appropriate, um, given the way the economy in general is moving at the moment anyway? Is it the case that monetary policy in terms of quantitative easing is actually still appropriate to do the kind of job that it's supposed to do in the first place? Um, OK, uh, any else from your side, Terry, in terms of what we should be looking at, uh, at the U.S. economy or, or whatever from your side? over the course of the next week or so? Well, I think we're probably going to see um, consumer confidence numbers continue to be weak relative to recent months. Uh, but a lot of that is some of the really bad news coming out of Afghanistan. Um, I think worries about inflation seem to be beginning to not exactly fade, but they're taking a back seat to other matters. I think people are actually getting a little bit used to higher prices. So the sense of urgency there isn't quite the same as it was. That's interesting because if we sort of move across to my side, um, I guess we're seeing a similar sort of picture in terms of some of these surveys. So, for example, consumer confidence for the Eurozone area. We'll talk about that first. Um, that fell for a second consecutive month in August. And that's down to its lowest level since April. But looking at some of the details, there, it does seem to be the case that although inflation in the Eurozone and what the headline rate is only running at, what, 2.2 percent at the moment. So well down what you have uh, US side anyway. Um, there are signs now that uh, these surveys indicating consumers are getting a little bit worried about the implications of higher prices on you know, real disposable incomes and the like. And mm -hmm. in addition to the rising trend in COVID, that's actually starting to, you know, to hit some of these sentiment numbers. Um, in any rate, I guess in line with what we've seen pretty well around the world at the moment, uh, the likes of the PMI surveys and most of the business surveys 
uh, for the eurozone anyway suggests that uh, we might well have seen the peak of growth since the uh, the covid recovery started uh, for the eurozone the flash august uh, composite output index in the pmi survey so the uh, if you like the gdp proxy that was 59.5 which to be honest is still a, a very good number in uh, historical terms for the eurozone but it was still down from 60.2 and weaker than expected and don't forget a lot of these surveys are still biased up by the fact that prices are still strong we still got uh, delivery times continuing to increase due to this ongoing problem with raw materials and indeed skilled labor shortages in many um, instances as well also out of germany today we had the efo survey which in many ways is perhaps the most uh, regarded of the business surveys within the eurozone that found the expectation component within that hitting its lowest level since February and morale was down in what manufacturing services and retail trade as well so pull all that little lot together and it does suggest that although the eurozone is certainly still growing at the moment um, there's downside risk to it and it certainly appears to be coming in somewhat short of what markets have been previously anticipating Pull that lot together, then bar the fact that inflation is still moving up. Indeed, it's a little bit above target now. It does suggest that the ECB will continue to be generally dovish. Um, and looking ahead into the fourth quarter, I think built into the market now is some kind of expectation that we will get a limited amount of uh, quantitative easing tapering. This will be by the PEP, the, uh, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, which was raised a few months ago to try and settle down financial markets when we had all those bond yields going through the roof. Um, well, it looks now as if the expectation is that we'll see a little bit of tapering from that once we go into the fourth quarter, but there'll still be a sizable quantitative easing program being undertaken by the ECB, which I guess amongst the major central banks at the moment looks likely probably to be uh, you know, more dovish than any of the others. What else have we got from my side? Well, as far as the UK is concerned, it's a similar sort of story. But if anything, the slowdown here may be starting to uh, to come through a little bit more quickly, particularly going back to these PMIs. I've got to just say, just to reiterate that certainly as far as Europe's concerned anyway, the PMI surveys have not been a particularly good leading indicator of actual GDP numbers. But in any event, since markets are so focused on them, August PMI then for the UK, the Composite Output Index, that was down at 55 point three again historically pretty decent but that was almost uh, what four points below where it was in july time and indeed a six month low and again this continues to reflect the problems uh, on your ongoing supply chain disruptions and increasingly in the uk the skilled labor shortages which you know poses a right raw problem for the bank of england because we are seeing wages over here continuing to accelerate at a time when gdp is slowing down so what are you supposed to do with policy but the bottom line, I think, is that most of the survey evidence and indeed the hard data evidence are pointing to a slowdown, possibly a sharp slowdown in third quarter growth. And on the back of that, not long ago, we were talking about the chances that the Bank of England might be forced to end its quantitative easing program early due to inflation you know, being well above what was expected. Well, given what's happened to the growth numbers at the moment, if anything, it looks like that has kind of gone out the window. So I think you know, certainly by the end of this year, the quantitative easing program will have finished. But any idea? about a hike in interest rate at this stage is uh, you know, probably a long way in the future. Um, Jeremy, what, what, what yeah. is the Bank of England? What is the Bank of England forecasting for inflation uh, over you know, the next 12 or 18 months? Well, they've got it rising now um, above the 4%, heading towards almost 5% uh, 
um, during the course of what the 12, next 12 months or so. But of course, to justify its decision you know, not to change policy, um, it's also got it coming back down to hit target. So it's medium term 2% target within sort of a two to you know, th three year period. So it's okay. very much consistent with a view we've got coming out of, well, let's be honest, a lot of central banks at the moment, whereby it's, you know, the current rise in inflation is transitory. It will come back down again as we get the base effects from COVID falling out, all price base effects falling out as well, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's got to be said over here that, you know, that the rise we're currently seeing wages is becoming a genuine issue. Um, clearly, um, there's compositional effects in there because of what the furlough program's done and everything else. Um, but nonetheless, it does seem as if there's a, a genuine underlying acceleration in wage growth, which you know, if it is sustained, it's going to make it difficult, I think, for the bank to get its inflation back down towards target over its current projection period. So I think, you know, if, if nothing else, the UK is going to be an interesting one to watch, I think, at the moment. ECB, by and large, looks to be relatively simple in a sense that tapering or not tapering their policy is not going anywhere in a hurry uh, for the bank of england no it, you know, it could be quite interesting to see what they're going to do if inflation does last you know go on higher for that much longer um one other thing i certainly mentioned from my side i guess really in terms of just looking at these these covid numbers as we've talked about you know throughout the podcast they are certainly impacting significant parts of the global economy and i suppose you've got to say by simply by more than expected since the original hopes were that we wouldn't be in the, the kind of situation we find ourselves in at the moment in just a, a, you know, a couple of months or so ago but um, there was a, um, a large scale UK study um, released what, last week or the week before, uh, which found that uh, while COVID-19 shots work, they're less effective against the Delta variant, which is clearly becoming you know, the big problem now for most of the globe. Um, and protection from the vaccines waned after about 90 days or so. So while vaccination rates are, are clearly going to continue to have a, a big say in investor sentiment towards well, those countries where inoculation rates remain very very low. Hospitalizations are going to become an increasingly important metric elsewhere. I mean, fortunately, death rates amongst the vaccinated remain well below the levels seen during the, previous, uh, the previous virus waves. But you know, at the end of the day, an extra work in hospital is still not good news for GDP. So bottom line, I guess, out of all of this, I think as we've all kind of intimated, you know, where COVID goes from here is going to have uh, you know, major implications for growth and indeed, ultimately, economic policy in general. Okay, that is it for me. Anyone else for anything else to put in the pot? No, I mean, I, you know, the, the 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 focus here in Australia is very much on that issue of um, whether we can uh, live with uh, this Delta variant uh, without it overwhelming our hospital system, and uh, whether we get to a level of vaccinations that uh, will allow us to. Um, move away from this policy oh, of just locking down. Can I switch interrupt, Frank? Your, your, your vaccination rate is still pretty low, isn't it, in Australia? Uh, it, it, I think, well, compared with uh, compared with you guys, yes, and, and some, some of the other leaders, uh, definitely. Um, compared with some other places in Asia, though, it's, it's um, better. So, you know, it just, um, it just depends. We we're, we're definitely uh, have picked up the pace in the last... Uh, you know, six weeks or so, but um, we, we're still coming, um, uh, you know, we've still got a fair way to go. All right. And Terry, just to round off for you, just in terms of COVID US side, um, what's actually going on there at the moment? Because over here, it's the numbers stateside look to be, well, somewhat grim. Is, is that the sense your side or are people not particularly worried about it? Um, I think it really depends on where you live. 
uh, I mean, right now, the southeastern portion of the U.S. is a real COVID hotspot, and it is a deep concern about that traveling elsewhere. Um, and it, it just sort of depends demographically where you are on what the vaccination rates are. Um, so I think the areas with high vaccination rates aren't particularly worried. Uh, and, you know, just anecdotally, the people I know who work in the healthcare system are saying they are absolutely overwhelmed right now. So um, I think it is a concern. I think people see it spreading. There's a lot of talk about booster shots now for, mm -hmm. uh, especially for vulnerable populations like the elderly. Um, so I think what we're going to see not only is, um, and we've just had FDA approval for, uh, I think it was Pfizer shot. Yeah. So um, that may encourage those on the fence about getting vaccinated or not to get vaccinated, but it's probably not going to convince the unfortunate large share of the population that is resisting getting a vaccine. But um, so I think what we're going to be seeing is a push to get the unvaccinated vaccinated and a push to get the vaccinated get their boosters. Booster, yeah. One day the world will get back to normal, but not tomorrow. OK, well, that's it from us for now, then. Um, on behalf of Terry, Brian and myself, thanks, as always, for listening. I'm taking some leave next week, so the podcast will be back in the following week. However, in the interim, do keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's comprehensive global economic calendar. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.